Hello, and welcome to the Entertaining Abstracts Podcast. I apologize, I have been away for a while. I've had a couple of medical procedures that precluded me from recording, but I am back now and ready to go. The first article that we have today is called Two 2,600-Year-Old Blocks of Cheese Found in Pottery at Pyramid in Egypt, Archaeologists Say. This article was written by Aspen Plugholt. Archaeologists uncovered a collection of pottery vessels, one containing ancient cheese, at a site in Egypt. Researchers made the discovery as they began their sixth season of excavation work at the Saqqara Necropolis, Egypt's Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities said on September 10th. Outside, the pottery had demonic writing on them, an ancient Egyptian script, the ministry said. Inside, the vessels contained blocks of white cheese. The cheese dated back to the 26th or 27th Egyptian dynasty, or about 2,600 years ago, according to the Met Museum. Researchers identified the cheese as halloumi. Halloumi is a type of cheese from Cyprus, known for its characteristic squeak. All recipes says... The cheese tastes slightly tangy and has a salty flavor with a spongy texture. Researchers did not say what the 2,600-year-old halloumi cheese tasted or smelled like. A similar discovery of 3,200-year-old cheese prompted discussions about eating the world's oldest cheese, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation reported back in 2018. Experts warned this cheese contained a potentially deadly disease, citing an analytical chemistry study. Eating the ancient Egyptian cheese was not recommended, Insider reported in 2018. Archaeologists found another set of vessels, all sealed, they planned to open in the coming days, the ministry said. The Saqqara Necropolis, also spelled Saqqara or Saqqara, so S-A-K-K-A-R-A, or S-A-C-C-A-R-A in English, is a village in Giza about 15 miles south of Cairo. Saqqara boasts Egypt's oldest pyramid and largest archaeological site. Past archaeological excavations at Saqqara have uncovered eight tombs, a cemetery, over a hundred coffins, and hundreds of other statues of cats and ancient Egyptian gods. Very interesting stuff. Next article. This one is called A Brief History of Children Sent Through the Mail, and it was written by Danny Lewis. One of the most overlooked yet most significant innovations of the early 20th century might be the post office decision to start shipping large parcels and packages through the mail. While private delivery companies flourished during the 19th century, the parcel post dramatically expanded the reach of mail order companies to America's many rural communities, as well as the demand for their products. When the post office parcel post officially began in January of 1913, the news service suddenly allowed millions of Americans great access to all kinds of goods and services. But most importantly, it had some unintended consequences as some parents tried to send their children through the mail. It got some headlines when it happened, probably because it was so cute, United States Postal Service historian Jenny Lynch tells Smithsonian.com. Just a few weeks after Parcel Post began, an Ohio couple named Jesse and Matilda Beagle mailed their eight-month-old son James to his grandmother, who lived just a few miles away in Badavia. According to Lynch, baby James was just shy of the 11-pound weight limit for packages sent via Parcel Post, and his delivery cost his parents only 15 cents in postage, although they did insure him for $50. The quirky stories soon made newspapers, and for the next several years, similar stories would occasionally surface as other parents followed suit. 
your stories about children being mailed through rural routes would crop up from time to time as people pushed the limits of what could be sent through parcel post. In one famous case on February 19, 1914, a four-year-old girl named Charlotte May Pearsoff was mailed via train from her home in Grangeville, Idaho, to her parents' house about 73 miles away. Her story has become so legendary that it even was made into a children's book called Mailing May. Postage was cheaper than a train ticket, historians say. Luckily, little May wasn't unceremoniously shoved into a canvas sack, along with other packages. As it turns out, she was accompanied on her trip by her mother's cousin, who worked as a clerk for the railway mail service, Lynch says. It's likely that his influence and his willingness to chaperone his young cousin is what convinced local officials to send the little girl along with the mail. Over the years, these stories continue to pop up from time to time as parents occasionally manage to slip their children through the mail thanks to rural workers willing to let it slide. Finally, January 14, 1913, several newspapers, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times, all ran stories stating the postmaster had officially decreed that children could no longer be sent through the mail. But while this announcement seems to have stemmed the trickle of tots traveling via post, historians say the story wasn't entirely accurate. According to the regulations at that point, the only animals that were allowed in the mail were bees and bugs. There's an account of May Pearsoff being mailed under the chicken rate, but actually chicks weren't allowed until 1918. But while the odd practice of sometimes slipping kids into the mail might be seen as incompetence or negligence on the part of mail carriers, historians see it as more of an example of, of just how much rural communities relied on and trusted postal workers. Mail carriers were trusted servants, and that goes to prove it. There are stories of rural carriers delivering babies and taking care of the sick. Even now, they'll save lives because they're sometimes the only persons that visit a remote household every day. Luckily, there are more traveling options for children these days than pinning some postage to their shirts and sending them off with the mailman. Interesting stuff. Next article. Kentucky two-year-old is the youngest member of Mensa in the nation. And this article was written by Carla Ward. From the first week the McNabs brought their baby daughter, Isla, home from the hospital, her father, Jason McNabb, suspected there might be something different about her. She just had this odd focus, he said. Her attention would be fixed on something for longer than normal periods of time. By the time she was a little over a year old, Isla really loved the alphabet, said mom, Amanda McNabb. At about 18 months old, she knew the individual sounds letters make and had begun writing letters with the sidewalk chalk they gave her to scribble with in the driveway. Now two years old, Isla lives with her family in Crestwood and is reading books independently and has become the youngest member of Mensa in the United States. The Oldham County toddler has been getting national and even international media attention since news of her membership broke. Her parents told the Washington Post that Isla can count forward and backward and do simple math problems. Mensa admits for membership those who score in the top 2% of the population on an intelligence test. Documents provided by the family indicate that Isla scored in the 99th percentile when she was tested by a Lexington psychologist in May. Charles Brown, a director of marketing and communications for Mensa, said that while the organization has more than one two-year-old on its roster, Isla is currently the youngest. It's not very common, he said. Kids that young just don't get tested often. Isla's family includes two older sisters and a big brother who is her best buddy. 
Amanda McNabb said they first discovered that Isla could read words at around her second birthday when her dad wrote the word red on an LCD tablet she'd received as a gift, and she read it, then proceeded to read each of the other color words he wrote. At first, Amanda McNabb said they started keeping a list of all the words she knew, but when that list reached 500, she said we stopped counting, because she can just read now. Now she's beginning to write words independently. Recently, Amanda McNabb said she found the word mom scrawled in crayon on a cardboard box she'd given Isla to play with. The McNabbs said they decided to have Isla, who will turn three in November, join Mensa because they wanted to be able to network with other families who had gifted children and tap into the organization's resources. There's not a lot of local community resources, said Jason McNabb, who said he's a member of the organization himself. Parenting a child as precocious as Isla comes with its own set of challenges, the couple said. Jason McNabb said she is going through huge changes week to week in what she's doing. They're already thinking ahead to her school years and wondering what it will take to keep her engaged. She's definitely going to need a customized education plan, said Jason McNabb. But in other ways, they said she's still a typical two-year-old. She enjoys helping in the vegetable garden, riding her tricycle, and playing in her treehouse. Ice cream and blueberries are her favorite foods. She loves attending preschool a few half days a week, and they said she loves playing with her cat, Booger. She named her cat, her parents said. Article. Another giant African snail sighting forces Florida community into quarantine. And this article was written by Emily May Chachor. I'm going to post some pictures of this one on our Instagram because these things are crazy. The reappearance of an invasive snail species forced state officials to enact a quarantine order last week for residents of Florida's Pasco County, an area north of Tampa along the Gulf Coast. Authorities took action after confirming that a notoriously destructive breed of mollusk, known as the giant African land snail, was identified by a community gardener in the city of Port Ritchie. A division of Florida's Department of Agriculture that manages pest control began to survey the region for additional snail sightings once the quarantine mandate was in place, according to the agency. The control unit started to treat the land with baited pesticide. Florida's Agricultural Department has called the giant snail one of the most damaging mollusk subtypes in the world. Its unusually large size and ability to procreate in vast quantities allows the creature to infiltrate surrounding areas quickly posing threats to vegetation and infrastructure because of its appetite for at least 500 different plants, as well as paint and stucco. At four months old, a single snail can lay thousands of eggs at a time, and each can grow to be eight inches long as an adult. The animals are mobile, and experts warn they cling to vehicles and machinery, plus trash to move long distances, and they are very resilient with the capacity to survive for a year while inactive and buried in soil to shield itself from unfavorable weather. They also present serious health risks to humans as the snails carry a parasite called rat lungworm that can cause meningitis. People are advised to wear protective gear like gloves when handling them. Giant African land snails have wreaked havoc on parts of Florida before. Although they are not native inhabitants of the state, officials have traced infestations dating back to the 1960s to escaped house pets and illegal importations by religious groups, the Tampa Bay Times reported. Owning and importing giant African snails without a permit is against the law in the U.S. 
any attempts to move the snails after a sighting is also illegal without proper documentation. Florida's Agricultural Department has recorded two instances where the snail was fully eradicated. The most recent was just last year, a decade after one of the giant snails was initially spotted in Miami-Dade County. Officials say a live snail was found in that area in 2017, prior to the most recent sighting last week. Detailed information about the giant African land snails in Florida's response to the latest sighting is available on the department's website. Wow, those guys are pretty freaky looking. Next article. Polio's arrival in the London sewer system is worrying experts. And this article is by Jeffrey Kluger. The UK's most recent case of polio occurred in 1984, and the disease was declared formally eradicated in 2004. But the country is on edge this week after the polio virus was discovered in several sewage samples in London, giving rise to what government officials call a national incident. No new cases of polio have been confirmed in the UK, but according to an alert by the UK Health Security Agency, it is likely that there has been some spread between closely linked individuals in North and East London, and they are shedding the type 2 polio virus strain in their feces. There were originally three strains of polio virus, but types 1 and 3 have been vaccinated out of existence. The virus was detected in London wastewater and is not the so-called wild polio virus, which used to circulate freely around the world, but has now been eradicated in all but two countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Rather, it is what is known as the vaccine-derived polio virus. There are two types of polio vaccines, the injectable version, which uses a killed virus to confer immunity, and the oral version, which uses a live but weakened virus. The oral version is easier and cheaper to administer and thus the vaccine of choice for mass immunizations. But on occasion, the harmless weakened virus can mutate to the infectious paralytic form, pass through the body and feces, and threaten to infect individuals. That is what experts fear could happen in London. Officials have no way of knowing who the original source of the virus is, but it was likely a visitor from another country since the UK switched from the oral to the injectable version in 2004 to prevent precisely this kind of vaccine-derived circulation. While 86.6% of British children have been vaccinated via injection and are therefore protected, that still leaves more than 13% who are vulnerable to the newly discovered virus, and officials are urging those children and anyone who isn't inoculated against polio to get vaccinated. Vaccine-derived poliovirus has the potential to spread, particularly in communities where vaccine uptake is lower, say doctors. The presence of the virus in London is undeniably a worrisome development, but by no means means a public health emergency. Circulating vaccine-derived polio can rarely cause paralysis, but like wild poliovirus that occurs in only about one in every 200 people who are infected, the rest develop only cold-like symptoms or no symptoms at all. Public health officials, meanwhile, are trying to trace the original source of the contaminated sewage through the wastewater plant where it was first identified. The problem is that the plant handles waste from millions of people, making finding even the neighborhood from which the virus originated much less the individual unlikely. The World Health Organization reports that sewage lines upstream from the plant are nonetheless being sampled to determine more precisely the regions of the city in which the contamination occurred. 
For now, the virus does not appear to be circulating widely in the community. If any infections do turn up, health officials would be able to type the strain of the virus and determine if it is the same as the one that was isolated in the sewage sample. Either way, the London scare is one more reminder that global eradication of polio, a long-sought goal, is tantalizingly close. The sooner it is stamped out in the two remaining endemic countries, the sooner no child will have to be sickened again. Next article. Why some summer fruits make your tongue itch, even if you're not allergic. An Anna Raman wrote this article. It's likely happened to you. You take a bite of an apple, a kiwi, or some berries and suddenly feel itchy around the mouth, even though you're pretty sure you're not allergic to the fruit you've just eaten. Why does this happen? Experts refer to the phenomena as oral allergy syndrome, or OAS, also known as pollen syndrome, or PFT. The indisposition is a pretty common one, and it's the result of cross-reactivity. Simply speaking, your body recognizes the proteins in the fresh fruit you've just consumed as similar to those found in pollen, which you're actually allergic to. According to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, OAS is a form of a contact allergic reaction that occurs upon contact of the mouth and throat with raw fruits and vegetables. The most common symptoms, which usually occur right after ingestion, are itchiness or swelling of the face, lips, tongue, and throat. It's usually a reaction to fresh fruits, nuts, or vegetables that develops in patients who have hay fever, which is an allergy to tree, grass, or wheat pollens, say doctors. About 15% of patients have a reaction to fresh fruits and vegetables because the immune system mistakes the fruit protein for pollen protein. Your body quite literally thinks you've just ingested the type of pollen you're allergic to. In terms of real food allergies, there are over 180 foods that have been known to cause them, and some are fruits and nuts. But when talking about these foods specifically, the reaction is usually caused by a cross-reactivity and this syndrome. The most common pollen allergies associated with OAS are to birch trees, grass, and certain types of wheat, experts noted. Generally speaking, there are four categories of environmental allergens that cross-react with the sorts of fruits and vegetables and nuts that cause allergy-like reactions. Just as certain fruits are in season during specific times of the year, specific types of pollen are more prominent during certain months. Which is to say, the reaction that many people associate with summer fruits isn't related to that season, but simply indicates a sensitivity to one or more types of pollen. Some folks deal with the allergy-like symptoms during the winter, spring, and fall as well after ingesting foods that aren't prominent in the summer months. There are a few important things to keep in mind when analyzing OAS symptoms. Cooking fruits changes their composition, often making them less likely to trigger a reaction. First of all, symptoms are usually relegated to the mouth. When we first digest the fruits, vegetables, and nuts, the protein gets broken down in our system and is no longer like it was when it first caused the reaction. As a result, the most common symptoms include itching, tingling, and perhaps burning of the mouth, lips, and throat. Sometimes, though, runny eyes and nose and some sneezing may also occur. If you have an anaphylactic-like reaction to the consumption of any of these foods, you might actually be allergic to the fruits, vegetables, or nuts themselves, not simply displaying a sensitivity to their cross-reacting pollen. 
the easiest way to avoid a reaction to any of these fruits and vegetables or nuts is of course to avoid eating them entirely. Cooking them or perhaps even microwaving them for a few seconds might help you avoid the symptoms as well. Interestingly enough, reactions usually do not occur when people consume the foods in a raw condition, such as canned or cooked. That is because cooking the fruits, vegetables, and nuts actually changes their protein makeup, and the immune system will no longer associate said protein with various other allergens. So if you're sensitive to raw peaches, for example, you may not experience the same symptoms when you eat a baked peach pie. All of these allergens are affected by heat experts explain. You can't eat fresh apples, but you can have an apple jam, for example. You can't have apricot, but you can have apricot preserve. That's because once cooked, the configuration of it changes. Eaters should also keep in mind that the major allergens are also located in the skin and the very heart next to the seeds of fruits and vegetables or nuts, according to experts. Not eating those specific parts of the fruit might alleviate discomfort as well. The most discussed treatment is allergen immunotherapy, which basically consists of getting regular allergy shots. Once you recognize the fruits or vegetables you are having a reaction to, you can do a skin test to check your sensitization to the pollen. The shots will then desensitize your body to the allergens in the environment, hopefully teaching your immune system not to react to them. Once you stop reacting to the pollen, your sensitivity to fruits and vegetables also decreases. We use the pollen extract for the shots to make the body tolerate the exposure to the protein without causing the reaction. The body will then say, I have so much pollen in my body already, why have a reaction when I encounter more of it eating a cucumber or an apple? It has been a successful way to outgrow the symptom by simply eating more of the fruits. It's not been proven successful to outgrow the symptom by simply eating more of the fruits, nuts, and vegetables that are causing a reaction instead of going through the therapy. There has been no anecdotal evidence, doctors say, but as adults, it's hard to know how much the exact your body needs to get used to it. With little kids, the immune system is forming, and so we advise the exposure to possible allergens, but when you're older, it's harder to determine. Since these aren't real food allergies, as noted by the experts, the symptoms typically subside on their own in a matter of minutes. That being said, taking an antihistamine, Benadryl, for example, will help soothe any sorts of itchiness or burning relatively quickly. Overall, doctors recommend awareness. After figuring out what types of fruits and vegetables or nuts is causing a reaction, consider taking a skin test in order to learn what pollen you're allergic to. Next article. Dog develops unusual tail syndrome after a happy day at the beach. So sweet and expensive. A Twitter user shared the hilariously unexpected syndrome her dog developed after an exciting day at the beach. Now, much like the dog dad who made a shocking discovery after spending $400 in vet bills to diagnose his pup's strange sympathy limp, this dog's adorable injury is going viral. Emily Gaudette, known as at Emily G Monster, is a Twitter user, writer, and content creator who makes social content for Prime videos and has written about movies for Newsweek, Polygon, Sci-Fi, and more. Emily shares funny stories and anecdotes on her Twitter account, including a recent story about the time she took her dog to the vet and discovered he had a condition called Happy Tail Syndrome. Emily shared the story in response to another tweet requesting that people tell me about your most ridiculously funny emergency vet bill. Emily responded recalling the time she brought her dog, Harley, to the emergency 24-hour vet after spending a day at the beach because she was acting skittish about her tail. 
Worried that Harley's tail was broken or injured, Kristen rushed to the vet for an examination. One 2 a.m. x-ray later, and the vet says she has happy tail syndrome, meaning she wagged it so hard on her day at the beach that it was sore. They handed us our dog, doped up from her anxiety about the x-ray, and a pamphlet that said something like, too much fun, over a photo of a dog with its tail and cast. Emily's story had Twitter users cracking up and sharing their own stories. That sounds so sweet and expensive, one Twitter user laughed. My dog got this, but it was sore from hitting her tail against stuff too hard when she got excited. Big, lovable oaf, another Twitter user recalled. I had a friend whose dog had broken their tail multiple times from just being too happy and smacking it on stuff, another reader shared. Fortunately, Harley was just fine and wasn't seriously injured after her fun beach day. Emily ended the tweet thread by thanking her followers for their kind words and stories. Harley says thanks for all the kind words. She is way too charged up about her tweet going viral. Emily wrote, sharing a video of the excited pup running through a grassy field. That is very sweet indeed. Speaking of dogs, this article is called Man on TikTok Documents a Year of Creative Athletic Training to Walk and Run on All Fours. Never challenge this man to a fist fight. Caitlin Menner wrote this article. A man on TikTok has spent the past year training himself to walk and soon run on all fours. The man, Nathaniel Nolan, who is at XP Movement, shared this video for his 300th day of training. Nolan's TikTok video has received over 1.8 million views and 14.5 million views. In the video, Nolan walks his viewers through his 300th day of strength and mobility training. In the caption, he states that his workout regimen is for trained professionals only. He begins the day with a few laps of him walking on his arms and legs as if he were a four-legged animal. I still can't believe how much smoother this looks and feels. I think I'm really starting to get the hang of it, Nolan narrated. Nolan then explains that the amount of training he has completed is enough for him to transition to more intense training, running. At the 19 second mark of the TikTok, Nolan tests his body's ability to run on all fours. He begins running normally, standing upright, and then suddenly dives onto the ground to get into his correct running form. The preparation I've done seems to have paid off because it went surprisingly well, Nolan said. The footage shows him running incredibly fast on all fours, which is impressive for his first time. TikTok users were bewildered by Nolan's unique athletic skills. Imagine him running at you full speed at night, one TikTok user commented. Bro, I can barely walk normal, another said. Another TikToker's praised Nolan's dedication to develop his fascinating talent. I'm not going to lie. This is actually great exercise. Getting creative with workouts pays off in so many different ways, another TikTok user wrote. I don't know what's coming, but this man is training for it, another said. I now feel the unnecessary need to try this, someone else commented. Viewers can follow Nolan's journey to walk and run on all fours on his TikTok page. There is also a video in this article where he posted his 85th day of training, which also went viral last year. In the video, he notes how much he has improved his speed, stability, and distance endurance. Never challenge this man to a fist fight, another man says from TikTok. Wow, people do some really wild things. Here is the next article. Oddballs appearing in Connecticut trees are actually alive. Here's what will emerge. 
Mark Price wrote this article. Something akin to Christmas balls are showing up in trees throughout Connecticut, and state officials are warning admirers the festive decorations are actually communities of wasps. The tan-colored globes are often referred to as oak apple galls and can easily be mistaken for fruit, according to Connecticut Fish and Wildlife. These little galls are some of the most amazing natural occurrences in our forests. They're still not fully understood by scientists, the department wrote in June on a Facebook post. They are protective nurseries for tiny wasp larvae that live in the center. Galls provide protection as well as nutrition from the host plant. They are produced by a parent wasp that essentially hijacks the leaf tissue at the molecular level to form a self-serving nest instead. Wildlife officials shared photos showing one oak tree with more than a dozen of the balls, some hanging in clusters. Holes were found in them indicating adult wasps that already emerged, the department said. Officials did not reveal the location of this one particular tree. It's truly a marvel of nature and causes little harm to the plant and the tiny wasps do not harm the humans. The orbs are known to appear between May and June, and the larvae eat their way out, emerging about a month later as adult oak apple gall wasps, according to the Wildlife Trust. Gall wasps won't sting persons or animals. Their sting isn't designed for an attack. It's actually simply a tube that lays eggs. It can pierce through woody tissue, but the wasp won't use it to defend itself. Wow, that's interesting. Next article. Ancient Inca tomb discovered under home in Peru capital. And Carlos Valdez wrote this article. Scientists have unearthed an Inca-era tomb in the heart of Peru's capital, Lima, archaeologists said. A burial dug up under a working-class home is believed to hold noble remains wrapped in cloth alongside ceramics and fine ornaments. Lead archaeologist Julio Abanto told Rutgers that the 500-year-old tomb contains multiple funeral bundles tightly wrapped in cloth. He said the entombed were likely elites from a particular society, a culture that once populated present-day Lima before the powerful Inca came to rule a sprawling empire across the length of Western South America in the 1400s. Famed for their gold and sophisticated constructions, including the mountaintop royal retreat of Machu Picchu, the Inca were conquered by Spanish invaders in 1532. Hippolito Tica, the owner of the house in Lima, said in an interview that he was overcome with emotion at the surprise find. It's amazing. I really have no other words to describe it, he said, expressing a hope that future generations in the working-class San Juan neighborhood will better appreciate the rich history all around them. Excavations began last month after Tika's reconstruction plans for his property triggered a required archaeological survey in a Lima district known for hundreds of past archaeological finds from cultures that developed before and after the Inca. Wow, that really is interesting. Next article. Newly found Chinese artifacts illuminate mysterious ancient kingdom. The article was written by Patrick Smith and Meredith Chen. A bronze altar and a dragon with a pig's nose are among a trove of items discovered in a sacrificial pit that shed new light on the buried secrets of ancient Chinese civilization. Archaeologists on Monday announced the significant series of finds at the Sanzingdu ruins in China's southwest Sichuan province, according to the team behind the dig, 
and a state-run news agency. A team including academics from Peking University and Sichuan University found thousands of items including intricate bronze, gold, and jade items, and what it called the unprecedented discovery of 10 bronzes. Experts say the find dates back 3,000 to 4,500 years. Discovered in the late 1920s, this particular area is one of the key Chinese archaeological sites. Experts think its treasures once belonged to the ancient Shu Kingdom, which dates back 4,800 years and lasted roughly 2,000 years. The new finds mostly come from what archaeologists call sacrificial pits 7 and 8, the highlight being a bronze box and a tortoise-shaped lid containing jade artifacts, including dragon heads. Pieces of silk fabric were found surrounding the box. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the vessel is one of a kind, given its distinctive shape, fine craftsmanship, and indigenous design. Although we did not know what the vessel was used for, we can assume that the ancient people treasured it says a local professor who is in charge of excavation at Pit 7. The role of the pits and their use is contested. One academic argued in a 2002 book, some believe the pits may be a kind of burial, but without human skeletons. The body might have been reduced to ash as a result of the ritual burning ceremony. Burned fragments of ivory were found in one pit, and the presence of ash, possibly the remnants of a tree and plant matter used as fuel, has led archaeologists to speculate that boxes were placed in the pits to be burned. In Pit 8, archaeologists found yet more elaborate bronze work, including heads and gold masks, an altar, and a dragon with a pig's nose. A curious three-part sculpture features a snake with a human head with protruding eyes, tusks, and horns. The top part of the head resembles an ancient trumpet-shaped wine vessel. Experts say some elements of the sculpture were typical of the Shu kingdom, while others seen are items from the Zhao dynasty. These three factors are now blended into one artifact, which demonstrates that this is an important part of Chinese civilization. More cultural relics unearthed at this site have been seen in other locales in China, giving evidence of the early exchange and integration of Chinese civilization. The sculptures are very complex and imaginative, reflecting the fairy world imagined by people at that time, and they demonstrate the diversity and richness of Chinese civilization, say professors. The Institute said some 13,000 items have already been found at this site since excavations began in the 1980s. The 12-square-mile site was accidentally discovered in the late 20s by a farmer in the Sichuan province who was repairing a sewage ditch. It is considered one of the most important Chinese archaeological finds and one of the world's greatest discoveries of the 20th century. The finds paint a vivid picture of life in ancient China. Small sacrificial pits and the sacred remains of cattle and boars were found alongside reeds, bamboo, and soybeans. Most historians and archaeologists previously thought the birthplace of Chinese civilization was the Yellow River Basin in China's north. But this particular discovery and its excavations in the 80s challenged these assumptions. The new finds were expected to be displayed in an exhibition at the San Zhengdui Museum near the city of Guanghan in 2023. Mystery has surrounded the fate of the societies that created the artifacts found at this site. Evidence shows that at some point they left the area and moved to the ancient city of Jinsha, near the modern city of Chengdu. Some scholars believe the move was caused by an earthquake 3,000 years ago. 
Very interesting stuff indeed. And finally, another interesting Chinese article. This one is called Ancient Chinese Woman Discovered to be the Oldest Known Case of Yu, Punishment by Foot Amputation. And this article was written by Ryan General. The work is the first well-studied punitive amputation case from an archaeological site, offering important insights and valuable data for further study of ancient Chinese penal system and social customs. The research involved the analysis of a skeleton found at a burial site called Zawan in the northwestern province of Shaizi. Regarded as the birthplace of the Zhao civilization, the site has previously yielded a large number of vessels, tombs, and oracle bones. Yu, along with other forms of mutilation, was widely used as a form of punishment in ancient China for over 1,000 years until it was eventually abolished around 200 BC. While the body was found during excavations that began in 1999, a study of the bones was not previously prioritized as the archaeologists focused more on finding artifacts. Peking University postdoctoral researchers said the studies shared that recent scientific developments have made their research on the remains more relevant. People only regarded this human bone as an incomplete bone before, but when I had a certain knowledge reserve, I thought at first sight that it might be a case of amputation. The result of the biomedical examination indicated that the reason for the amputation was not justified by disease or injury. The victim reportedly lived for at least five more years after the foot was amputated. X-ray analysis of the 3,000-year-old remains concluded they were from a woman aged 30 to 35 with an amputated right foot, indicating the seriousness of her reported crime. The bone density and structure of other parts of the skeleton ruled out the possibility that the woman suffered from diseases like diabetes, leprosy, or cancer. The deformities found in the woman's tibia and fibula also offered evidence that it was not a medical operation, which would leave relatively flat and smooth cuts. Combining the biomedical analysis of the tomb occupier and the U amputee's images engraved on bronze vessels unearthed from nearby tombs, it can basically be determined that it is an example of the U penalty and the earliest known example. There is a very important provision of the U penalty. The left foot will be amputated for light offenders while the right foot will be cut off for heavy offenders. It seems that the tomb owner committed a felony. Historical records and artwork contain evidence of the practice that purportedly punishes a range of over 500 offenses that include rebelling, cheating, stealing, and even climbing over certain gates. Those who were subjected to the punishment mostly died from the amputation, while survivors were forced to live under prejudice and persecution. Wow, that is interesting stuff indeed. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about any of the articles we talked about today, you can shoot us an email. We're at entertainingabstracts at gmail.com. And we do post pictures of some of these interesting articles on our Instagram page, and that is at podcast.addict. And please join us next episode when we talk more about entertaining abstracts and wild and crazy stories. Good night, folks. See you next time.